Okay, let's look at our scripture that can be found on the back of the bulletin uh, and is also on the screen. Uh, This is Paul who continues to minister to the Corinthian church, and he's talking about wisdom. This is what it says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word of the Lord. Well, if I was to summarize the philosophy of the world the wisdom of the world, the strategy of the world, I would sum it up in this quote. Every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning, a lion wakes up and it knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. It doesn't matter whether you are a lion or a gazelle. When the sun comes up, you better start running. I think that's a beautiful picture of the wisdom of this world. That when I wake up, I have to prove my existence. Whatever it is that I am looking for that I want, whether it be happiness or fulfillment, purpose or meaning, I have to go find it. Or at least enough of it for that day to get through the day. Because the next day, the race starts all over again. The philosophy of this world is that it is a world of limited resources. And therefore, it is a survival of the fittest. It's me against you, and you against me. This is what Paul is describing here in this passage as the wisdom of the world. And as Ken communicated, it pervades us. It surrounds us. We've been brought up on it in our education system. When we turn on our radio or we watch the TV or we uh, surf the internet, we experience that message. It invades our way of thinking. And it has infected the Corinthian church and is manifesting in how they live and can do so in anybody 
of Christ. But Paul is saying in this passage that there is another wisdom, a wisdom from God that is true wisdom, that can bring peace and fulfillment to our hearts, that can bring harmony and love that we can have with each other. You see, the gospel frees us from the death race of the world and calls us to live by his grace and not our efforts. Jesus has freed us from the prison of performance. So put your value in his grace, not in your efforts. See, Paul is saying that we have to choose which wisdom that we live by. And our lives and our relationships are reflections of that choice. So we're going to look at three things in the brief two hours that we have together. Number one, the wisdom of the world. Number two, the wisdom of the cross. And finally, the choice that we all have. Well, let's look a little bit deeper at the wisdom of the world. Remember, Paul has been pleading for unity in the Corinthian church, that there are these factions and divisions in the church that people have sort of separated into these camps based around different power centers. And so Paul says in verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul is in essence saying there is a new power, a power that you're not living by, but should be living by. But this power is folly to the world. And what is this power? It is the cross. Now notice what Paul is talking about. He's talking about Jesus and his crucifixion. What Paul is preaching is Christ crucified. And in fact, if you look at verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. It's in the perfect tense, which means it's something that will always be preached. It's part and parcel of who Jesus and the gospel it is. Paul does not sweep under the rug in terms of when he's preaching about Jesus Christ and focus on just the resurrection. No, it's part and parcel, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, why is this a crazy strategy from a worldly wisdom perspective? Because Paul is preaching in the Roman Empire, right? And every hearer in the Roman Empire would know that this so-called Christ had suffered a particularly cruel and shameful death, which was reserved for hardened criminals and rebels. To proclaim a crucified Jew from some backwater of the empire as a divine being sent on earth, God's son, Lord of all and the coming judge of the world, must have been thought by any educated man to be utter madness And Christianity was born in what looks like disastrous defeat and unspeakable stigma. But you see, that is precisely God's plan. Notice in verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul is referencing Isaiah 29, 14, where God says that he destroys the wisdom of the wise. If you'll remember back in Isaiah, Israel was under threat of attack from Assyria in the north. And though God told Israel that 
He would protect them and watch over them. Instead of listening to God, they sought an alliance with Egypt, a strategic alliance to make them stronger. And lo and behold, once they actually entered into this agreement, that is what prompted Assyria to attack them because they were nervous about them being allied with Egypt. What he's talking about is wisdom that seeks answers and solutions independent of God. He goes on in verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul is speaking of certain professional classes of people in society, the scribe and the debater of the age, the professionals who make their living on supposedly being able to discern and give wisdom. But he's saying that these people that make themselves out to be the final arbiters of truth, in other words, not looking to God for truth, but rather making their own truth based on their perspective, that God ultimately makes them foolish. Now, we have our own professional wisdom class, don't we? The college professor, the journalist, the government official that we look to to tell us what is true. And God says all of that is for naught. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, does God not value wisdom? Does Paul not value wisdom? Is is he saying to be a Christian that you must check your brain at the door? No. He's saying, for since in the wisdom of God, verse 21, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, this wisdom of the world is not as much a system of thought as a style of life a general way of assessing life that is egocentric and self-centered. It's man-centered. It's a wisdom that says that we are the measure, that man is the measure. The Bible is very clear, right, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fool says in his heart that there is no God. What Paul is saying is that the wisdom of this world does not lead to knowing God. Rather, it makes a God in our own image. The Jews look for signs, Paul says, and the sign they get is the cross. But they defame it as blasphemy because the cross does not part the sea for the people to cross in safety and then drown the pursuing enemy. The Greeks look for wisdom that will exalt man, rather, and so they cannot see the wisdom that shows God. And the wisdom of the world ultimately leads to a competitive and self-serving outlook. It glamorizes self-exaltation, not self-emptying. Comfort and ease, not suffering. Personal honor and esteem, not humiliation. Just look at the wisdom of our world. 
And it doesn't take long to understand and see that it's futile. Our educational system has banished God and gives a secular outpoint, uh, outlook, which means there is nothing other than this world. And what has that led to? Our understanding of truth in the academy is simply this now, that there is no truth, and that is the truth. A five-year-old can tell you that that statement makes absolutely no sense. Yet that is the philosophy that you find in college. What the academy, what our educational system, what our uh, journalistic system says is that you are the final arbiter of truth. And as long as it's true to you, it's true. Well, what does that mean when you and I have absolutely opposing perspectives on what truth is. It doesn't matter, right? The only thing that matters and is true is that there is no such thing as exclusive truth, which is an exclusive truth, right? So this leads to a world in which everybody can promote their own truth. So why does anyone find it to be a problem when someone decides to walk into a school and shoot it up? right? It's their truth. Why are you impinging on it? What about our political system, where each side says we hold the key to truth and demonizes the other side? And we think that when the right party gets in power, all will be well, right? But it is more of the same, isn't it? Because it's all about power in the end. I remember talking with Scott Rigel about this when Scott was in Congress. And Scott said, if you even dare to go over to talk to somebody on the other side, they punish you. Because that is not allowed. Because it's winner take all in the world of politics. The wisdom of the world will always separate and divide. And so we live in this world by the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. The wisdom of the world says, since there is no God, we must become God. And I need to tell you that we make terrible gods. I don't know if you're familiar with this magazine, Self Magazine. Self Magazine was started in 1980. The founder, Phyllis Starr Wilson, explained what Self Magazine stood for. And an extraordinary spirit and energy are emerging in women today. Fitness is the fuel. We have acquired a strong appetite for the full experience of life, the exhilaration of the outdoors, the challenge and success of professional work, the honest enjoyment of sex. Self will be a guide to the vitality we need to do all the things we want to do. In other words, just listen to self, and self will guide you to what it is that you're looking for. My friends, I'm here to tell you that the world's wisdom is a dead end. That the message that you are the measure leads only to dissension, frustration, and emptiness. Because when you live by that philosophy, life is a zero-sum game. 
There's only one God, and it's you. And therefore, everyone else is a tool, a means to the end of your happiness. Are you relying on the wisdom of the world? That you must create meaning. That you must get motivated. That you must keep up with the Joneses. I need to tell you that you are not the measure of the world. For you cannot confer value on yourself, nor can the world. Only the one who made you can validate you. So stop relying on the wisdom of the world. It is Jesus who has freed us from the prison of performance. So let us put our value in his grace, not on our efforts. This leads us to my second point, the wisdom of the cross. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. See, God was wise enough not to let human wisdom be the key to knowing God. It's in the cross that God puts both the Jew and the Gentile, the wise and the foolish, the trained and the untrained on the same level. Because knowing God has nothing to do with an abstract intellectual knowledge about God, but is connected with God's own self-revelation. And the way he has chosen to reveal himself to us is through the cross. The cross is the power of God. Society's definition of power is rooted in the values of wealth and status and honor. And society translates that to God. All gods have power. That's what makes them God. It's a question of which God is the most powerful. But Jesus turns the pyramid of power upside down. The way that God shows his power is to be seen in God's crucified Christ, who dies to save the ungodly and the weak. In the cross, Jesus becomes weak to give us dignity and worth. In the cross, Jesus is shamed to make us glorious. In the cross, Jesus is condemned to make us innocent. And this gospel is powerful. And the power that it's talking about is the effectiveness of the cross to make God known to us, to accomplish salvation in our lives to defeat evil, and to transform our lives. See, the power of God is manifested best, not in the measure of his strength, but rather in the measure of his love. You're perhaps familiar with this statement, would you rather people fear you or love you? This comes from the political philosopher Machiavelli. And we all love Michael Scott's answer from The Office, right? The answer is both. I want people to fear how much they loved me. Machiavelli was a contemporary of Luther and Calvin. And in his uh, seminal work, The Prince, he says, it is better to be feared than loved if you cannot be both. 
Because obedience due to love and affection is unreliable, while obedience due to fear is not. Machiavelli believed that the only way to make men behave morally is by force. In fact, totalitarian force to compel them to act contrary to their nature. Our philosophy in Western society is built on Machiavelli. If you look at Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and Mill and Kant and Hegel and Marx and Nietzsche, even John Dewey, the founder of our educational system. But in the gospel, we see that God, who is the ultimate power, does not use his power to control and dominate, but to serve and redeem through suffering. He's the exact antithesis of the world. That's how you know that he's the true God, right? 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And now Paul turns to the Corinthians, and he turns to us and invites us to look inward. Consider your calling. Brothers, many of you were not wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. See, the Christians in Corinth belong to a wide range of social strata, and some of them are wealthy, but being economically prosperous did not mean that you belonged to the socially elite. He's saying not many of you were wise, meaning learned and clever and experienced according to worldly standards. Not many of you were influential. influential. You didn't have access to the social and political levers of power. Not many of you were pedigreed in your birth. In other words, if we look honestly at ourselves, we're not the cream of the crop. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. What is weak in the world to shame the strong. Notice that God's choosing is said three times. It's God who chose. Not based on our status and our accomplishments, but rather on his grace and his mercy. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, meaning the things that were not considered influential, to bring to nothing the things that are. See, the God who died in this way chooses people in the exact same way. He chose us, if you are a follower of Christ, when you really had nothing to offer him so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, who would ultimately get the glory? It's the Lord. He saves us from exalting ourselves. For the only way to enter the kingdom of God is on your knees. The gospel calls us to a new way of living, a new paradigm of power not only in how we are saved, but in how we are to live. In service and humility. See, the message of the cross is the antidote to human self-glorification. So that we can see ourselves rightly. 
that we don't have it all together, really, and that we don't have to. And we can see others as equals, worthy of dignity and respect and love and concern. Imagine if you were God for a second. It shouldn't be that hard. What way would you create for humans to be saved and not come under judgment? Well, if I was God, it's simple. It's on you, right? Get your act together. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's sink or swim. Here's the rules. Here's the laws. Get it done or else. But I'm certainly not going to suffer for you. You're in this boat. You made your bed. You should lie in it. Is that what he did? So the question is, how do I see God? Vengeful? Pay your way? Get your act together? Or a loving, gracious, and caring father? The cross shows what he is like. So if you want a mirror or a window to look at the face of God, look to the cross, for your heavenly father is not like the world. He frees us from the prison of performance and showers us with his grace. This brings me to my final point, the choice that we face. And it finishes this passage, Paul finishes, and because of him, because of God's choice, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, that is righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Paul drives home the point that it is by grace that you have been saved, if you are a follower of Christ, through faith. And this not from you, it is a gift of God. When Paul is speaking of Christ becoming wisdom for us, he's speaking about Christ being the long-established plan for the salvation of his people. And notice that he became wisdom for us. Paul unpacks what this wisdom is. It's righteousness, it's sanctification, and it's redemption. When you look at your life and your day and you're experiencing unhappiness in your life, it's always a result of not being able to do something I want to do, have something I want to have, or concern about what others will think of me. In other words, we place our value on what I have, what I can do, and what others think of me. Now, do you ever wonder why we care so much about those things? They aren't bad. It's just the question of where we go to get the answers to them. And in this list of righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, those questions and those values are answered. What do I mean by that? What I mean is Christ has become for us our righteousness. And our righteousness means what I have. It's my standing before God. It's what he declares about me. 
It's whether the kingdom of heaven and the promises of God refer to me or not. See, in Christ, we have had a status conferred on us. The righteousness of Christ is on us. So when God looks at our lives, he sees Christ's. It's what I have. But it's also Christ is what he did. He answers the question in his redemption. What does redemption mean? It means being bought or ransomed from death to life. See, I spend my life trying to do enough in order to be considered right in the eyes of the world, really right in the eyes of God. But it's Jesus Christ who has done what needed to be done by living a perfect life, by dying on the cross for me. He has redeemed me. He has lived the life that I should have lived. And it has been imputed to me through the righteousness of Christ. The, the questions that I have in my heart, what must I do and what must I have are found and answered in Christ. As well as that final question, not what others think of me, because as we know, that only lasts for a little bit, right? The most important question that I wake up asking is, what does God think of me? And the answer is through Christ, I am sanctified. What does that mean, sanctified? It means that I'm set apart. It means that I'm holy. It means that I, am, I belong to God, reserved for him and for him alone. In the old temple, if you'll remember, there was uh, the room that only the priests could go into to offer sacrifices. And then there was the Holy of Holies, right? That only the high priest could go into. Once a year after uh, washing and ritual cleansings, and they would put a rope around his his uh, uh, ankle in case he did something wrong and God would strike him dead and they would haul him out. See, because I'm sanctified, I literally can skip into the Holy Hole of Holies and sit on the mercy seat because I am in my father's house and he loves me and he's pleased with me. See, in Christ, all that I am looking for in this world is answered. What I do, must do, what I have, what others think of me. All that I am looking for is found in Jesus Christ. So we must choose where we find our value. From the world or from God? If it's the world, there is no God and you're on your own. And so it's hustle time. And whether you're the lion or the gazelle, you better start running. Because it's them or me. But if you choose to find your value in the cross, it's a different race to run. Not of survival, but a race of victory. Because Christ has already run it. And I am victorious in him. I don't have to wake up running, but rather I can wake up resting 
Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And now I'm not running from something, I'm running to something. The cross and the gospel gives me the ability to see my fellow man, to respond in love and service to him, not in ambition and suspicion. It allows me to live out the values of the cross. So how do we choose the cross? The Bible is very clear. No man can serve two masters. Either you will hate one or be devoted to the other or vice versa. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, die to the wisdom of the world. Die to me being the center of my life. What he's saying is, choose me. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, right? That when a man found, he went away in all of his joy and sold everything he had, and he bought that field. See, we really what it means is looking to Christ to be all that you are looking to, for in the world. There's a big misnomer and mistake that we have about Christianity. We think that Christianity is about the crucifixion of our desires. And that is quite wrong. Our desires come from God. But when we look to the world to fill them, they become distorted. But Jesus is saying, what God our Father is saying is, open wide your mouth to me, and I will fill it. I delight in you desiring me. Tomorrow you'll wake up and you'll have a choice to go out into the world, to seek to find your glory as fading as it is, just enough to make it through the day. Or to rest and enjoy being constantly fed by your Savior. If anyone believes in me, as it is said, streams of living water, will well up in him, flowing out to eternal life. If you aim at heaven, you will get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you will get neither. Jesus has freed us from the prison of performance. So put your value in his grace, not your efforts. Let's pray. Father, when we stop and we look at the wisdom of this world and we look at the wisdom that comes from you, it's a no-brainer. Jesus, in the cross, we see unconditional, ever-flowing love. We have dignity, we have meaning, we have worth in you. God, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and who you are to us. Let us open wide our mouths 
to you and not to the world, for you will fill it. And you will give us love, which extends out through us to all of those around us. Let that be our testimony. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.